Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, an extensive conversation with Jason Furman of Harvard University and, of course, his public service to the nation with the Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, Jason, wonderful to have you with us uh, at this moment. You're going to tell me as a public policy uh, type that we need to see more data, that we need to see two or three months data. Does President Biden and others wait for that data or must they adjust to this report? Look, I think the main people who need to adjust to this report adjust to the jobs report we got last year is um, the Federal Reserve. The other part of it is looking at what we can do in our economy to address the biggest thing we have, which is a constraint on supply. We need more supply. Shots in arms are doing a lot. My guess is there's a lot more people working in May than in April. But when you take this plus the jobs report on Friday, plus the totality of the data, I think we have a very different picture of the economy right now than a lot of people held a week ago. It's a different picture of the economy. Vice Chairman Clarida will speak here in, I believe, 24 minutes. Does he adjust? Is there one word or one sentence that will begin a tone of a Federal Reserve shifting their language? I don't know. I mean, they're very big on this being transitory. A lot of this is transitory. We saw a 10% increase in the used cars and trucks market in April. Okay, but Jason, Jason, I don't want to interrupt you, but I'm looking at rentals in New York City that are not transitory. As Michael McKee just mentioned, higher rents are real, not transitory. Oh, oh, I agree. Oh, I was going to say, you are going to be able to point to things that are transitory. I think your best guess has to be that this isn't entirely transitory. The Fed and others have rested a lot on inflation expectations being anchored. This is the type of thing that's going to start to move those inflation expectations. So, yes, I think the problem is you can point to all sorts of transitory things, strip all of those out, add in what we know about how much demand we have in our economy, how little supply we still have. Uh, you know, I think this this bears some caution and should change the way people are thinking about the economy. Jason, what do you think that means for the relief package we passed just a couple of months ago when Larry Summers and others, including <laughs> Olivia Blanchard, came out and said it was too big for the moment we're in? Do you think this is evidence of that? Oh, it was definitely too big for the moment. I don't know any economist that was recommending something <laughs> the size of what was done. Um, the question is how big the downside was. Um, I I wouldn't leap to a judgment yet on the basis of April. This is one month's data. The data are obviously extremely noisy. We knew as the economy reopened, there would be all sorts of patches along the way, rough patches along the way. But, you know, I think there's a, a certain amount to that logic. And let's try to do what we can to make it not true. How do we make uh, Larry's prediction not true? Uh, We increase labor supply and the Fed is a little bit more cautious to help keep inflation inflation anchored. Jason, can I get your thoughts then on what happened on Friday when we saw that big miss and we talked about the supply side story and the mismatch between demand and supply and that maybe prices would need to adjust? 
Arguably, as you've pointed out, we saw that in wages already and we could see that a whole lot more in months to come. Some governors of Republican states have decided that they need to remove the additional UI, the unemployment insurance that was offered by the federal government and the package that was delivered recently. Do you think that's the right decision to fill that gap? Yeah, so the big miss on Friday was wages. The expectation for wages was 0.0%. The actual number was 0.7%. Even that actual number understated what actually happened because of composition effects. The real number is probably more like 0.9%. Um, either way, that's the fastest wage growth we've had since the 1980s. So you're not looking at you know one isolated data point around used trucks. This is everywhere around us. Um, if I were in a state with a 3.5% unemployment rate, I'd be thinking seriously about whether um, paying people more to not work than to work was a good thing to continue doing. Jason, lost for words there. Are you in agreement with Republican governors then in places like Arkansas, I, Iowa, Montana, I, South Carolina? You know, it depends on where you are in the virus. It depends on where you are in your unemployment rate. But by certainly by June, July, August of this year, I don't think we need the same UI system we had in January. In January, it made sense. 3,000 people were dying a day. We did. We want to give people an option other than work and support them in that option. Um, in an increasingly hot labor market <clears throat> for a lot of states, it may not make sense. It may not make sense in the same way. So I think they should be taking a hard look at it. Uh, Dr. Furman, I just did a study here. Thank you, John, for extending that out because I was working the Bloomberg Terminal. Uh, Jason, I did a standard deviation study on a monthly basis of core CPI back to the time of Paul Volcker. Maybe around 1990, I can find a jump condition in core CPI like we see now. We do interview after interview where experts like you say it's about the jump that we see in inflation. Right now, we're seeing a jump that I would suggest is near original. How do, should we respond to that? Yeah, uh, I mean, the economy is going to do weird things. We saw a collapse that was um, you know, historic last year in prices. We're seeing some of what we're seeing now is the unwinding of that. Some of what we're seeing is different sectors come back at different paces. So I wouldn't leap all the way to where, you know, we're not worried about inflation. Now we're worried about hyperinflation. It's going to be 0.9 every month from now on. But you know, what I'm saying is just a recalibration of views. Discount the data a lot because of the weirdness. Don't discount the data all the way. You should update your views some. How do you think that meeting in the White House changes later between the big <clears> four and the president of the United States with this inflation data this morning? Now, every single market participant, every economist will come on the show today and talk <clears> about it only being one data point. But that's the data point, I imagine, that the Republicans will be talking about all day going into that meeting in the White House later. Yeah, the meeting is there and that's a political discussion. It'll be emotional like gasoline and all that. I'm way more interested in people like Jason Furman and I would go to the vice chairman where particularly if he does Q&A, John, that will be fascinating. We get the Q&A in a about 15 I minutes didn't know time. That. Okay. Jason, just a final one from me before I have to run. <clears throat> Your view on that, how the Federal Reserve will talk about this when we hear from the vice chair in about 15 minutes, what would you anticipate? What would you expect them to say in the coming weeks off the back of this data? I 
would expect them to make very little in the way of adjustment. I would expect them to emphasize this is transitory. Some of the quirkish parts of this, like um, used cars and the like, I'd love to see them tilt a notch towards concern about inflation, but I think they'll mostly uh, be doing more to explain this away than to express any concerns about it. Jason Furman, let's do a little bit of a history lesson of the shock here. And I went back to 1990. Neil Dutta talks about the biggest one-month gain since June of 2009. Dr. Furman, take us back to the 60s. And Robert Samuelson uh, at the Washington Post has written about this, the time of Walter Heller. What did they do in the 60s about the inflation shock? And should, should we use that as a template? First of all, they did a lot of emphasizing one-time factors and micro stories. You know, there's this segment is doing this, that segment is doing that. Um, and they missed the bigger macro forces, what was going on with fiscal and monetary policy. So, you know, number one is look at the macro. Don't do each, try to explain away each one of the micro. Um, lesson two, though, which I think is a good one for us, it took years and years and years of a policy change to get us to the place we were at in the late 60s. We've just been through a freakish pandemic. We've just been through a highly unusual period of policy. Yeah. I don't expect policy uh, to. I don't think there's been a huge regime change. I think we'll go back to the old regime and this mm -hmm. should hopefully all stay under control as a result. But we do need to get back to a little bit more of the old regime for that to work. We certainly heard that from Jan Hatzius yesterday, folks, of Goldman Sachs. Then I look at what wages will do, and there's that phrase from ancient history, uh, Jason Furman, a cost push inflation. I don't observe that anywhere. Am I wrong? Are we going to redux the 60s and uh, 70s, I should say, and cost push inflation where we have to whip inflation now? I mean, we just saw that in April, wages were up by about 0 0.7, 0 0.9, depending on how you look at the number. Uh, prices were up by that same amount. Uh, you know, again, I mean, we obviously don't want to read too much into any one data point. But unless people start heading back to work in bigger numbers, um, we're going to have concerns. Now, that should happen. It should happen no later than September mm -hmm. when uh, unemployment insurance expires. But, you know, it, it needs to happen. Jason Furman, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with Harvard University and, of course, the Peterson Institute. We're all markets, markets, markets. John, I'm going to go to the real economy like Jason Furman, jobs formation, and that. You wonder if a little bit of rising inflation finally helps people in a booming GDP economy, 8%, whatever the number is. So that's the tension, folks, as we go here 25 minutes from now on the financial aspects and the asset aspects, the real economy aspects, no one better to dovetail those two together than Alicia Levine of BNY Mellon, always writing smart. And what's so important about Alicia Levine is really looking almost at a strategic basis of where we are given this rising inflation. You talk about a regime change, Alicia, in America. Describe that. Right. So, look, we, we think that when the new administration came in, it was really focused on Main Street versus Wall Street. And I think the policies that have flowed from the fiscal side and frankly to the monetary side 
really are creating that. So as you've said all morning, you know, a little bit of inflation is actually quite positive for Main Street. You get higher wages, you get some pricing power, you know, you get assets moving higher. And in the real economy, that's not such a bad thing. It tends to be terrible for equity markets, particularly in the long duration assets, as we've seen in the last couple of days where, where the tantrum really was in the equity market and not in the bond market. The equity market is telling you that their inflation fears all over right. the place for investors. So look, <clears throat> we think there is a regime change. So higher growth, higher inflation. That doesn't mean, you know, terrible inflation. It does mean, though, that higher than it was in the post-global financial crisis, mm -hmm. and therefore higher rates eventually. But right now, we're see, we're think, we think it's sustainable. Right. We don't think this is a sugar high, okay? Uh -oh. It's very clear. It's not a sugar high. It's Alicia, really a regime change. You've got fancy degrees. You're expert at the mathematics of the financial system. And you and me have the, what in common is we started out dishwashing. You had a love affair with a Hobart dishwashing machine at a camp years and years ago. Let's talk about the real world effects of this inflation. In the old days, that meant rising wages. Do you fully that into your strategy or is this time different from when you were running a Hobart? So so those were great days and actually I didn't get paid at all. So yes, there's inflation for those jobs. But look, there is clearly supply constraints in the labor market as well, which is what we learned on Friday. R wages are going higher and they're going higher because we don't have as much slack in the labor force overall. Even if you strip out the extra unemployment benefits, which of course are a downward pressure on, on, on labor coming into the market. But if you think about the expedited retirements in the boomers, the 55 and above, you think about the fact that 2 million women have simply dropped out of the labor force, probably because schools are not open. By the time those schools open, you know, it's been 18 months that people are disassociated from the labor force, very hard to get back into the same job. So we think participation will be lower, slack is lower, and wages will be higher. You know, as we saw with Jolts yesterday, there are 8.1 million jobs available, ostensibly the same number of jobs as those who do not have jobs today that did February 2020. Something's wrong, right? Some, there's a mismatch. So there's a skills mismatch and there's a need to pay labor higher. And I do think that the fiscal policy that's been enacted has conditioned people, frankly, to want more and to expect more. We've just spent $850 billion from January 1st in 2021 as the economy's reopening directly into households, directly into bank accounts, more than we, and we spent, that was 600 billion last year when the economy was closed. And we're expecting another 400 billion by early September. All that is going to create upward pressure on wages. Next logical question then, what does that mean for margins, Alicia, and what are the sectors that you would avoid? Right, look, I think I think the rotation that came became apparent in the fall last year still plays out, right? So, you know, commodities, materials, industrials, financials and energy are really the sectors that benefit from higher inflation. And that's where we would be. Very hard to ignore your profitable tech. You know, the future is digital. You have to be there. We just think that that, those, that sector probably underperforms a bit. And we do think that speculative tech, you know, those companies that we know and love and are valued on revenue and not earnings will really suffer here. And we would stay away from those. We just think it's a long-term secular change in 
where rates are going, where yields are going, and, and where expectations are going. So I think the cyclical trade will have legs and will have legs for longer. We saw a ton of companies in the first quarter raising prices, P&G, Kimberly Clark, others as well. Alicia, there's a nice little debate, debate playing out on the south side at the moment on staples. BTIG on the one side, BMO on the other. BTIG likes the pricing power. BMO is worried about the input costs. Where are you and the team on staples? I like staples simply because they've underperformed so woefully that it's just a good, it's not a bad place to come in here. They do have pricing power. I think households are, are, are becoming conditioned to paying it, frankly, because there's so much extra liquidity in the household sector, right? You're not getting pushback. So therefore, those price changes will be sticky. If you add to that, that the sector has completely underperformed as the here and now looks better than worrying about the future three years from now, I think it's not a bad place to add to staples here. You know, you want to add when it seems like the wrong thing to do. So there you it go. seems like the wrong. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I mean, we like we, we've learned this, right? How many times do we have to be hit over the head? And so I, I actually do like staples here for that reason. I think this pricing power will be very sticky. When you raise wages, you don't lower them. When you raise prices, you don't lower them. Get comfortable feeling uncomfortable. That's a life lesson, Correct. isn't it? Alicia, thank you. Yes. Alicia Levine, BMY Mellon, investment <clears throat> management. Right now, this is a joy for John and I to bring in Terry Weissman with us uh, out of Vassar and Harvard. Terry Weissman, iconic on emerging markets at Bear Stearns long ago. And most importantly, he is the director of global currencies and interest rates for the crew at 50 Martin Place in Sydney, Australia, with Macquarie. And we're thrilled he could join us right now with a real touch of this economics, but also it is linked to the commodity boom. Does inflation cause commodities... Or is a commodity boom going to cause the inflation to come, Terry? You know, it could be two ways. Um, one of the aspects of inflation that I think is driving the commodity boom is just public policy, right? You have uh, quite a lot of, uh, of an imperative around the world to move towards a green economy, and that's clearly causing some commodity prices to go up. So here the, 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 the causality runs from public policy to commodities. But you also have to take into account that the rise in commodities, whether it's speculative or not, is going to put pressure on things that have nothing to do with that green economy. Uh, if copper prices go up, home prices can go up as a result, simply because of the cost push inflation. So it runs two ways. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I suspect that there is a little bit of a speculative element in some of the commodity prices that have seen a big increase recently, but more so iron than copper, let's say. Right. Well, that's right where I wanted to go. Terry, when you talk to the commodity experts at Macquarie, and truly, folks, they are Australian experts, how does iron ore dynamics filter into a more developed world inflation Wednesday? Not too much, because, because iron goes into steel, and steel is really a construction material. It's not a, a cons it's something that's really prevalent that much in the consumer basket. <laughs> But I will tell you this, Macquarie's view on iron is not positive. Uh, we see a lot of the run-up recently as having been caused by hoarding on the part of Chinese steel mills who are worried the Chinese in the second half of this year, Chinese policymakers will come down hard on the steel mills because of environmental uh, issues and that they will do that by restricting iron imports in the second half. And as a result, steel mills are hoarding uh, iron now ahead of that and, and obviously um, uh, hedging against uh, future price increases. But that's not really a demand-based story as much as it is a story about fear of, of import controls and fear of restrictions. Copper, as I mentioned, is a different story. That is, that is purely structurally demand-driven. 
People are excited about the, the implications for copper demand coming from green economy imperatives. Terry, what's China's role in all of this? If you showed me a chart of China's credit impulse, I might have made a different decision on the direction of travel that we're seeing across some of these markets. What is China's role in this cycle? Well, well, normally China's role is as, as a commodity uh, 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 importer and demander. And, and of course, the credit cycle is hugely important to determining how much uh, credit is being, is being directed towards construction, towards infrastructure uh, uh, in China. So credit normally plays a strong role. But what, all I'm saying is that this time around, and maybe the reason you're seeing this divergence between credit growth and commodity prices is because in the case of some commodities, What's being driven is not structural. What's driving is not structural demand coming out of China, or certainly not the outlook for stronger structural demand. China, after all, may be moving towards monetary tightening in the latter part of this year, but might be moving these commodities instead is concerned about restrictions on the use of them later or the import of them later, I should say. And as a result, is hoarding today. Very different story, very different dynamic, let's say, than what we normally get out of China, where credit drives the commodity price cycle. When you look at market-based inflation expectations at the moment, Terry, let's tie the two stories together. To what degree do you think they're being influenced by what we're seeing in the commodity market? Not that much. I, 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 you know, to some extent, we're talking about consumer prices here, um, and, and the price of a house does not figure into the consumer price index, but figures into the consumer price index. It is the service price of, of renting a house, let's say, or the owner equivalent rent. That's not affected too much by the price of a home. So I don't think commodities themselves, not certainly not those 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 basic metal commodities, are having that much of an impact on CPI. No, I think what's having, or for that matter, expectations. I think what's driving inflation expectations is, is somewhat different. It's it's a Fed that has been uh, politically inclined to be to sound very dovish and therefore fuel inflation expectations higher. And of course, we have everything pertaining to the demand impulse uh, around the world coming from public policy, more spending in the U.S., respectively more in Europe. I think that's fueling a little bit the inflation expectation increase that we've seen recently. Terry, the vice chairman, I believe, speaks at 9 a.m. Uh, Wall Street time. Can they shock the market or can they actually have a dialogue the next 90 days where we ease our way towards the beginning of a discussion of less accommodation? So they can ease into it. Uh, and I Can think they do that? that? Not today. <laughs> Not today. Just because I said that they can ease into it doesn't mean they're going to ease into it today. I think this is too soon. Even if the CPI print comes out high, let's say on a headline basis of 3.7 or 3.8, it's way too early for the Fed to make a determination as to whether or not uh, the increase in inflation is permanent or temporary. And the reason is because we know that a lot of it's driven by supply shocks, and the market has a way of addressing those supply shocks ultimately with more supply. Uh, and as a result, I don't think the Fed is going to say today I don't think Richard Cloward is going to say today that it's time for the Fed to talk about tapering. By August, maybe. I think by August, they'll have eased their way into it, in part because by August, the economy will be better. It'll be a more synchronized global recovery as well. Potentially, there'll be more, some more pressure as a result of that on some basic goods, not necessarily copper and iron, but others. And I think at that point, they can talk about uh, the need uh, to have a discussion about tapering. And then, and then the countdown begins. But today is too early. Terry? Good to catch up, as always. Terry yeah, Wiseman there wonderful. of Macquarie on currencies, <clears throat> commodities and rates as well. We're making jokes about it, but the inflation is real and it affects all of us. Truly the right guest at the right time. Stephen Rusciuto joins us. He's with Mizuo and he does acute, I mean scary acute detail 
on breaking apart the American economic landscape. He joins us uh, right now. Steve Rusciuto, let's go right through the function and let's start with the consumer. How will the consumer adjust to new inflation? Well, I think the uh, stimulus checks that have been provided are really the adjustment. The amount of excess savings or increase in savings that the household sector has accumulated as well over the uh, last year plus of stimulus checks is going to help the consumer get beyond these problems. I think you also have to understand that for a lot of these components, such as airline fares, hotel rates, um, you know, used car prices, new car prices, you know, there was a big downdraft in inflation that occurred last year in many of these components. And these are the components that are coming back now as the economy is reopening up, as the vaccine has become more important than the virus. And so, therefore, we're getting back to more normal levels. Okay, this is really important, folks. And trust me, I've had hate mail on this before. We'll do it with Mr. Rusciuto right now. Steve, you know the synodal function or sinusoidal function in physics. You've got the squiggly little line in it dampens down towards zero and that's called a damped function or if you wear a bow tie it's called a dampened function (laughs) steve rusciuto is inflation going to dampen out over the next number of months to a level that's more appropriate or do you have a fear of a trend like the 60s I don't have a fear of the trend like the 60s. You know, the 60s was a wage price spiral. The wage price spiral was largely a function of the cost of living adjustments that were rolled into union contracts. Um, And those are what created the wage price spiral. This time, we don't have a direct linkage between wages and prices like we had before. And to the extent that we have global excess supply now, where we had global excess Mm -hmm. demand there, corporations had pricing power. So they thought they could pass the price increases on through to the consumer. And that's what created the cycle. This time through, yes, there will be an upward movement in inflation, but it will not be anywhere near that wage price spiral that, you know, people are still fearful of all these years later. Uh, Paul, John from Lester emails in and he says, Tom, you idiot. (laughs) Damped is when the sinusoidal wave dampens down towards zero. Dampened is when your tire gets wet. Ah, okay, but he spelled a T Y R E because it's John from Lester. We're throwing that out. All right, so (laughs) Steve, Fed Chairman uh, or Vice Chairman Richard Clarida this morning said he was surprised by the rise in consumer prices, but continues to believe that they are transitory. What's your take there? Well, again, this is this is the theme that they're running under. And again, in my world with excess supply, they are likely to prove to be correct. You know, we had a big downward draft in inflation due to COVID. Now we're having a big response back up due to the the vaccine being more important than the virus. And that tends to drive the prices higher. What the Fed is concerned about is they want to see real increases in compensation costs to drive a sustained move upwards in prices so that they could be assured prices are going to be at that two to slightly higher level on a sustained basis. So not until they see that happen are they going to change their view. Uh, And they believe they need to get to maximum employment, I should say full employment, to get to that view. And clearly, if you believe the SEP, where they think the long-term trend in the unemployment rate is 4%, and you're at 6.1% after the April data, they feel they've got a long way 
to go before those conditions will be in place. Now, from my perspective, the stimulus, the monetizing the debt, all are important factors pushing up on inflation. But by the same token, global excess supply is a big force pushing down on inflation. And the net net is I think we're probably going to get back to a sustained 2% for rise in inflation, but I don't think we're going to get substantially higher than that. Well, Steve, you know, when you think about obviously wage inflation, that needs to be there, a big driver. Um, but you could argue that the uh, everything's in place to get some real wage inflation. Everywhere you go down the street, there are, you know, help wanted signs in there. It looks like if you want to get people off their couches and back in the workforce, you're going to have to raise wages perhaps significantly. Are you concerned about that? Well, again, you are, I mean, given the unemployment compensation benefits that are being provided, it is certainly set a much higher threshold for low-wage jobs to come into the marketplace. And not only do you have to match that wage, but when you consider if I could get that wage and not have to go to work, you're going to have to pay me some, something even more than that to get me to actually come into work. So the net result is they will look at even this upward movement in wages as a result of the compensation cost as a temporary consideration. It will be a one-time adjustment upwards in the cost of living. Yeah. And that's what they're looking at. They're betting on that one-time adjustment, not a sustained yeah. move. We've been talking, And that's why they're focusing yeah. on maximum employment. Sorry, Tom. No, that's fine. We've been talking about that all morning. I think it's really profound. But do we get a one-time adjustment in boom economy? What is your reframe... I mean, I guess you got to wait for retail sales Friday, but I get it. We're in a boom economy, and then we get another 90 days of a sort of kind of like boom economy. What's the Rusciuto take on Q3, Q4, Q1, 2000? I love saying that. I sound like, I sound so fancy. <laughs> Rusciuto right. would throw me off the stage. Q1, 2022, Steve. What's it look like? Yeah, the economy by 2023 on average will be back to two to two and a quarter percent growth. Because right, everything so they're doing is transitory in terms of its transfer payments. It's not leading to real productive growth in the economy. And therefore, we're going to get back to a more shallow growth trajectory. You keep on providing stimulus out of year, you're going to keep on being able to drive it up temporarily. But once you get to the point where they can't get any more stimulus down the pipeline, out of the balance of power changes in Washington or whatever, we're going to be right back to an economy that grows at two to two and a quarter percent. It's just a question of where we are in the labor market by the time we get there. All right. So one of the questions I have is, when is transitory not transitory? Is it one month, two months, three months? Can we get back to V-shaped? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, when should we get concerned? Or when do you think, more importantly, the Fed will say, oh, boy, our transitory call may not be the right one? Yeah, as we approach 2022, that's when you begin to see if these things haven't worked their way through the system this year, given the growth numbers. I mean, my number at 5.9% for growth for this year is kind of on the low end of street expectations. And then people are looking at it, you know, another 4% type growth next year. So the reality is you have to get into 2022. Um, and that's when they're going to begin looking at this and saying, okay, is this sustainable? Is this not sustainable? Have these pressures been one time? Have they been transitory or not? Because yeah. the presumption is that the vaccine will become more important than the virus in a lot of our trading partners at that point oh. in time. And again, that global excess supply thing will come back in a vengeance and wind up dampening prices. Keep in mind, a lot of what we're seeing here are adjustments in things like hotel rates and airfares. You know, how long is it going to be before airlines start bringing more planes back? 
back onto the market. You know, this is the kind of thing. It takes time to ramp these things up, and that's what they're betting on. So you have to get into Mm -hmm. 2022, which is a long way away from here. We're only in May. Steve, thank you so much. Stephen Rusciuto, brilliant with Missoula there as well. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.